open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we continue in our study of 1 Corinthians. We've been in this for a long, long time now. I don't even know when we started. It's been weeks. I know that. Probably uh, more than three months. And so we're in the section on spiritual gifts, which begins in chapter 12 and runs all the way through the end of chapter 14. And we are in the home stretch now, in the middle part of chapter 14. We're going to look at a pretty significant portion of Scripture today. But don't lose heart. It's going to go really quickly. <laughs> Usually a lot of Scripture means really, really long. And... Uh, it's, it's the application of the premise that Paul gives to us in 1 Corinthians 14, 1-3. through 3, And he continues now to expand upon this premise that he has made, the theme of this chapter, if you will, in these remaining verses. And so we're going to actually look at, uh, excuse me, verses 1-5, through 5, we're going to look at verses 6 all the way down to verse 19. And this will be the way Paul unpacks the thesis that he began for us in the early part of this chapter. So as Paul continues to deal with spiritual gifts, his focus in this chapter, based upon all that he's laid down in chapter 12 and chapter 13, is the Corinthians' misuse of the gift of tongues. So as a part of our review, tongues in the New Testament is really only emphasized here in 1 Corinthians, and most specifically in this chapter, it doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, in the New Testament, after Acts 19, which would have been during Paul's third missionary journey, which is widely accepted to be somewhere between 54 and 58 A.D., some 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, early in the life of the church. Historically, there was only a resurgence of the presence of tongues in the early 1900s. And it's interesting that Paul treats it here and no other uh, apostle deals with the subject at all. We had nearly 1,800 years of the absence of the usage or the emphasis of the gift of tongues. It was almost non-existent in the church until the early 1900s with the early Pentecostal movement, which then morphed into the charismatic movement that we would be more familiar with today. The early church fathers of the first four to five hundred years of church history never even mentioned tongues usage within the church. So it's quite possible that the treatise that Paul has here on the gift of tongues is not necessarily an affirmation of the gift of tongues as the Corinthian church was using it. But instead, it's a treatise on how they have misunderstood and misappropriated it, which is widely believed to be based upon their previous pre-Christian ecstatic utterance experience in the mystery religions that were common within the Roman culture. So think about this. In the Corinthian church, there were no second-generation Christians. They were all first-generation Christians because the gospel message is only about 20 years old, and so there really wasn't an opportunity for generations of believers to come into the church and practice these things that have been passed on to them. So it's accepted by many that the practice of speaking tongues as it was being done so in the church at Corinth was based widely on what they did in their pre-Christian idol worship as a part of the mystery religions prominent within the, the culture of Rome. So by way of review in your outline, for those of you that weren't here, and this was two weeks ago that we looked at this, so it's a good review, prophecy is superior to the gifts of tongues. Now, the first time we've heard that, Paul has said that throughout this passage and in the previous chapters as well. So, because prophecy is superior to all of the other spiritual gifts in Paul's estimation, 
He instructs them to desire prophecy. Paul has in mind the teaching aspect of prophecy, not necessarily the revelatory aspect of prophecy. Teaching isn't limited to the public teaching arena, teaching being a part of prophecy. It's also present in authors, small group Bible study teachers, and others who have this gift of prophecy, which is in its simplest explanation, is the ability to teach the revealed Word of God in a way that helps people understand it and apply it to their lives. So, Paul says that tongues is individual. It's for the individual in the Corinthian experience. And as he begins to talk about this, he mentions something that gets developed in this passage we're looking at today a little bit more in detail. So when speaking in a tongue in the Corinthian experience, the speaker is, first of all, talking to God. Instead of speaking to people while assembled For church, the so-called tongue speaker is actually speaking to God. So no one can understand the tongue unless it be interpreted. So compared to prophecy, which everyone can understand, tongues is limited to something that only God can understand. So again, this is based in the ecstatic experience that they were so familiar with. In this ecstatic experience, it was believed that you entered into this trance-like state and you communed with the gods, speaking in an unknown language, the language of the gods. And these were not real gods, but they were the idols created by man as a part of this mystery religion experience within the Roman culture. So if this is in fact what Paul intends, he's not so much affirming their usage of tongues as much as he is showing them why prophecy is the superior gift and why they need to be more concerned about possessing this gift or developing the ability to utilize this gift within their own lives. So not only is the one speaking in a tongue speaking to God, Paul goes on to say that they're speaking in mysteries. When one speaks in a tongue, no one can understand what is being said, not even the one who is speaking it. So he's speaking in himself to himself. He's speaking mysteries which even he does not understand. Again, this is most likely a a reference to the ecstatic utterance phenomenon where they entered into this trance-like state, communed with the gods, and just prayed in their spirit little s, not capital S, where they were believing that they were speaking to the gods in mystery. So as a contrast to this, Paul again promotes prophecy because prophecy edifies. In the Corinthian experience, tongue speaks to God in mysteries, but the one who prophesies speaks to men for their edification, building them up spiritually, for their exhortation, exhortation providing spiritual encouragement to them, and speaking to them with consolation for their spiritual comfort. So it's obvious why Paul prefers they seek prophecy instead of tongues, because prophecy is beneficial to the entire church, where the individual tongue tongue speaker is the only one who benefits from that, and we'll look at that a little bit more in our passage today. So as a contrast to the, to the church-wide edification of prophecy, tongues is for self-edification. This is the reason why Paul so strongly instructs them to pursue prophecy over the gift of tongues. So as we think about how Paul has rebuked the church in Corinth throughout these earlier 11 chapters... They had this unhealthy preoccupation with these showy gifts, whether it be prophecy or knowledge or wisdom, and in this instance, tongues. Some think that what Paul is actually doing in this passage specifically is somehow turning their beliefs 
against them sarcastically to show them how they are misusing and misunderstanding the gift of tongues. In a sense, Paul may be saying you're more preoccupied with self-edification than you are spiritually impacting the church through the gift of prophecy. Not spiritual edification, but personal edification, because the one who entered into this trance-like state in the mystery religions was believed to be superior spiritually to those that did not. So it was all about, here I am, look how mature I am, how spiritual I am, don't you wish you could be like me? That doesn't edify the church at all, it only exalts the individual who professes to have this gift. So prophecy is greater. Paul's making it very clear that he did not denounce the genuine gift of tongues or its usage. Paul could be saying this as we look at this in the last part, I think it's in verses 4 and 5, if the Holy Spirit chose to endow every one of you with the gift of tongues, that would be fine with with me, but I would prefer that God would endow you with the gift of prophecy because prophecy edifies the entire congregation. He says in verse 2, I pray, I, pre- I prefer that you would prophesy, and his reasoning is clear, because prophecy is greater. Greater is the one who prophesies, the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edification. A believer with the genuine gift of tongues was never to exercise it unless he or someone else had the ability to interpret it. We'll look at that a little bit later. So either the tongue speaker himself or another person, as Paul will allude to in verse 28 that we'll look at next week, was always to interpret so that the church could be edified through whatever was being spoken in a language the people could not understand. That's the review. Now here's the new stuff. Pretty lengthy section, so we're going to look at verses 6 through 12 first, and we'll break that down, and then we're going to look at the remaining parts here. So let's read together, beginning in, in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 14. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not pr- produce a distinction in the tongue, how, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If, then, I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. So, new in the outline, number two, as we continue through chapter 14, is this. Tongues are unintelligible. Now, Paul begins to develop what he established earlier in in verse 2. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit, little s, he speaks mystery. So now Paul has established that, and now he's going to begin to explain what he means in saying what he has just said. So this is why Paul prefers they pursue the gift of prophecy, because prophecy is understandable by those who hear the word, where tongues is not. So, letter A, tongues does not edify. Paul establishes this, and he continues to unpack that for us now. Beginning in verse 6, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, 
What will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or prophecy or of teaching? So even if the great apostle Paul, the most influential of the apostles, having written 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament, if this guy comes into your church and begins to speak in tongues and you have no idea what he's saying, what is that going to profit you? This is what Paul's point is. Speaking in tongues gives no profit apart from the ability to have it interpreted. So what Paul speaks to them, whether it be revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching... It must be understandable in order for it to profit the listener in any way, shape, or form. Any message is useless if the language cannot be understood. Paul provides two very basic illustrations now to emphasize the point that he has just made. The first illustration here are the instruments. Verse 7, yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, and producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? So think about this. Think about a child who is learning to play a violin. Can you imagine such a thing? We were not very musically inclined in my home. I don't know how musically inclined you were in your home, but I would imagine that the violin is about the last instrument any parent will want their child bringing into the home to learn to play. You've heard it screech. You've heard it just... There's, I mean, that's not music. It's a sound, but it's not music. No one could understand what it is the child is trying to play. That doesn't sound like Mary had a little lamb to me. What on earth are you trying to play? He goes on to explain in the instruments in verse 8, for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So in this era... The bugle was used to communicate battle formations and movements of the troops so they would know where to go and when to go. And this practice carried on for a very, very long time. So you had a guy who stood on a hill with a bugle and he would begin to blow in it. And as the troops were trained to hear those sounds, they would know where to go, when to go, when to stop, what to do. But just some guy up on a hill blowing into a bugle, making a lot of noise, the troops are going to be going, what is he saying? I don't know what I'm saying. Do you understand it? I don't know that command. What do we do? This is Paul's illustration of what it would be like for someone to come into a church assembly and begin to speak in a tongue. I have no idea what they're saying. This doesn't make any sense to me at all. This doesn't benefit me at all. As an example from several weeks ago, up until 1972, Catholic Mass was given in Latin. And you could go every week, all the days of your life, and you could go, I have no idea what he's saying. I don't know Latin. I don't even know how to learn Latin. What does it profit me? So the application for this illustration is found here in verse 9. Paul says, so also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. So Paul takes the Corinthian practice of tongues, he uses the illustration of these instruments and says, this is what you sound like. You sound like somebody speaking into the air. It's just a bunch of noise. It isn't clear. It can't be understood. You're not interested in communicating anything to the church. You're not interested in edifying the church. All you're really interested in is self-promotion. To speak in the air is a way of expressing speech that isn't really heard. It just kind of 
drifts away with the wind. Have you ever been outside and you've heard a band play and it's a windy day and you just, I mean, the sound's just not getting to you. It's just not there. It just, and you go down a ways and it's really out of sync with what they're doing. You hear the drum and then it goes, Boom. It's the wind. It's the wind blowing. You can't hear what they're saying. You can't understand what is being said. So the church assembly, our gathering, is a place for, uh, for excuse me, for them, it was a place for them to feel good about themselves with their alleged gift of tongues. The gathering was not about edification of the church. It was about me. Look how spiritual I am. Don't you wish you could be more like me? Now, the second illustration that Paul gives here is a lot more to the point, and he uses the illustration of languages. Verse 10, there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. So a language without meaning is absolutely pointless. A language without meaning is not really a language. Now, have you heard of pig Latin? Well, pig Latin was something somebody made up. There's this other one, I was Ibop or something like that, where you change the, the first letter you put on the end. Well, some, something somebody made up. Well, you could hear somebody chattering like that, but unless you knew the code, you'd have no idea what they were saying. So language without meaning is not really a language. It is the meaning that makes language language. And this is what Paul is applying to the Corinthian usage of the gift of tongues. Now, this is very obvious to us. All languages sound different. But each has a single common purpose to transmit meaning among those who speak it, among those who hear it. I've heard a lot of different languages, and i got to tell you, are you just making sounds? I mean, I have no idea. You ever heard Taiwanese or Chinese or Japanese speak? And When I studied Hebrew in... Seminary, don't get real uh, impressed by that. I didn't. I don't remember any of it. But the Hebrew language is very, very different from the Greek language or from the from the English language. When you hear Arabic or Israeli people speaking, there's a lot of. It's called a guttural language, and so they. And if you don't have those sounds, you can't understand what they're saying. Every language sounds different, but they all have a common purpose to transmit meaning. So again, Paul provides an application to the illustration of languages here in verse 7. If I then do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Now we'll talk about barbarian in just a second. To most Greeks of Paul's day, anyone who did not speak Greek was called a barbarian. It was an insult. But if you didn't speak Greek, you were considered less than the Greeks. You weren't a part of the privileged Roman culture. And so that would fit the category of all other people groups. So Jews saw only themselves and Gentiles. Greeks only saw themselves and barbarians. But we would look back on this era and say Jews, Gentiles, and then barbarians because that's what Romans thought of those who couldn't speak Greek. So communication is two-sided. Both the speaker and the listener must understand the language. You must be able to understand the words being said. Have you ever listened to an astrophysicist give a lecture? What, 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 what is that? What did he say? i got no idea what he's talking about. I mean, it's like way over my head, right? Because communication has to be understood by both. So if you're fluent in French... 
You could speak the most beautiful truth I could ever hope to hear, but if I don't understand French, guess what? It doesn't benefit me at all. It's of no value. It can't help me in any way, shape, or form because I don't know French. It's just noise. Paul says, therefore, seek edification. Don't seek the singular, selfish, look-at-me gift of tongue. Seek edification through the gift of teaching the revealed Word of God for the benefit of the church that is assembled. Verse 12, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. In other words, if you're so eager to minister spiritual gifts, minister them in the way God intended for the benefit of the church. So again, the clear word is that the gift of tongues is for public use, not private individual use to be brought in to a public gathering. This is why Paul makes the connection here. Seek to abound for the edification of the church. Doesn't say this, but this is what he implies. Not just yourself. So the present tense of the Greek word there, seek, indicates a continuous, habitual action. Continue to seek edification for the church. So the purpose of the gift of tongues, just as the purpose of all language, was to communicate, although it was a miraculous sign gift, It also was a a communicative gift. That's a hard word to put together. The miracle of tongues at Pentecost is the great example of tongues in the New Testament. Everyone present, though from many different countries, heard the apostles speaking in their own language. Now, you remember the day of Pentecost. They were in the upper room praying, and as Jesus had told them great things were going to happen, prepare yourselves, and God pours out His Holy Spirit, and it appears like a tongue of fire on their head, and they go outside and they begin to speak, and they're just talking, but everybody is hearing them in their own native language. Here's the account in Acts chapter 2, verse 6 through 11. There it goes. And when the sound occurred... Sound like a roaring, a roaring uh, wind. The crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues. What? Speaking the mighty deeds of God. Now imagine this. If they came out of the upper room speaking the mighty deeds of God in a language nobody could understand, what would have profited the individuals who are hearing. Absolutely nothing. And so this is the standard for the gift of tongues. The Pentecost tongues and every true manifestation of tongues after that time until they have ceased were understandable either directly as seen here in Pentecost or through an interpreter as Paul will reference later on next week in verse 27. Here's the key. God did not give Two different kinds of gifts of tongues. One intelligible and the other unintelligible. The Bible speaks of only one gift whose characteristics and purpose did not change. It's the misunderstanding, it's the misusage of the tongues based in the Corinthian church 
built upon their understanding of the ecstatic utterance rooted in the mystery religion experience of the Roman culture. Now, number three in our outline, we get into the next section of Scripture. Number three, the effect of the gift of tongues is emotional. Let's read together, 13 all the way down through 19. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, what does Paul mean by all that? Well, Paul will begin to unpack what he means here, that the effect is emotional. It's selfish, not edifying for the entire church. Letter A. Paul says, seek interpretation. Verse 13, therefore let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. So Paul has already established that in the Corinthian usage of tongues, they are speaking in mysteries that only God can understand. Therefore, without interpretation of these alleged mysteries in the language of the gods, the tongue speaker cannot be understood by anyone, and no one benefits from it except the individual who is speaking in this mystery language. And it's just for himself. Therefore, pray for the ability to interpret so that it can edify the whole church. Now, here's the thing that isn't said specifically, but it's how we logically apply what Paul has actually said here. If tongues is a counterfeit gift, no one will ever be able to interpret it. If it is a legitimate language that someone has been gifted to speak without studying it, then someone is eventually going to be able to understand and interpret that for them. Therefore, if you had somebody who was invited to our church who spoke in Korean and no one could interpret it, you'd say, well, this is really great. I hope it's right. I don't have any idea. But someone who can interpret it now can help us to understand what he is saying. So someone can actually interpret it for us so that we benefit from it. So pray that God will gift you with the understanding of this language that you profess to be a language of the gods. If they are honest with themselves, they will acknowledge that they cannot understand it. And if that is so, then they should stop using it. Now, Paul is going to go on and talk about the chaos that is present in their assemblies, and a big part of that is how people are competing with one another and bursting out in this ecstatic utterance. So, Paul makes some application here in verse 14. He says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, it's important to notice here in verse 14 that spirit is not capitalized, which means that translators, the, the word that's being used, translators rightly interpret as man's spirit, not the Holy Spirit. So Paul draws again on the ecstatic speech practice of the, of the mystery religions. And so the mystery religions, ecstatic utterance, it was believed that the mind was bypassed And the individual prayed in his spirit as his spirit communed with this God. This is what they believed and this is how this worked out within the the, the mystery religions of the day. So this practice, Paul says, is what? It's unfruitful. 
because a mind has no idea of what is being said or what is being prayed, and therefore it has no value. So if an individual is speaking in an unknown language that he can't understand and he can't interpret, what is its real value to the individual? It's emotional. It makes me feel good about what I think I can do in communicating with God, but I don't know what I'm saying, and you don't know what I'm saying. So Paul says this is completely unfruitful. Verse 15a, what is the outcome then? What is the outcome when an individual speaks in a language that no one can understand, and the, and the speaker can't even understand? What's the value? There's no value. There's no place for edification. There's no benefit that's going to come from mindless, ecstatic utterance or prayer. So the reason Paul prays they seek interpretation is, letter B, for edification. Verse 15b, the remaining part of 15. I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. So it's obvious that edification does not exist apart from the mind Now, spirituality involves more than the mind, but it never excludes the mind. Here's what Paul writes in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, it's not a... It's not a mindless exercise that we are to engage in as they understood this to be. Paul would also write in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 22 and 23, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So this mindlessness that takes place in these ecstatic utterances have no value. You have to have mind and speech combined together for there to be value. How can anyone who is in the presence of this ecstatic utterance praise God for the words being spoken if I can't understand it and you as the speaker can interpret it? Verse 16, otherwise if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks since since he does not know what you are saying? So the word ungifted here in the Greek is also translated as uninstructed. It can sometimes be applied to those that are outside of the faith and unaware of spiritual truth in general. And so the word uninstructed communicates the idea a little bit more clearly than does ungifted. Technically, it's the right translation. The point is this. How can the one who does not understand what you are saying agree with what you're saying, give the amen at the appropriate time? I don't don't know what you're saying. How can I agree with it? And how can I participate in what you're saying if I don't understand the words? So again, the most insightful, elegant teaching in any language I do not know will not benefit me at all. So the result of unintelligible tongues we see here in verse 17. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. Paul gives the real result of the current Corinthian tongue-speaking practice. No one but the speaker is edified. And this edification is only emotional because the speaker does not even know what he himself is saying. So lastly, here we look at number C, the affirmation of what Paul says here. He says in verse 18, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. So Paul is affirming the authentic, legitimate gift of tongues as exampled in the experience on the day of Pentecost. And so apparently 
Paul had been gifted by God to speak in languages that he did not know, and this is what he is alluding to. He does not dismiss the real gift of tongues, but he does establish very clearly his preference. And we see that here in verse 19. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So five understandable words are far more productive in the church than 10,000 words that no one can understand. Now it's interesting that the, the, the number, the number 10,000 here is the largest number that the Romans had a word for, and it was often used in writing to represent an, an, an estimable, an inestimable amount. It's amount of words that you can't even count. Paul says, I would rather speak five words that you can understand than thousands and thousands of words that you can't understand. That's what Paul says, I prefer. Now, I want to give you an example of this, and I hope that this will really make the point. You're going to hear a very emotional, truth-filled clip. And I want you to ask yourself this question. How much does this benefit me? You ready? Now, can you see the emotion? Man, he's impassioned, isn't he? What did he say? I don't know. You want me to tell you what he said? For God so loved the world... He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, would you rather listen to that or 10,000 words of an impassioned man speaking things you had no clue of the content? This is Paul's way of dealing with the misunderstood, misapplied truth of the gift of tongues in the Corinthian church. And as he goes on to talk about this more, it becomes more obvious of how out of place it really was in the life of the Corinthian church. Let's pray together.